Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, soon to be resurgent, disgusting filmmaker. <laughs> and joining us tonight, he is the editor-in-chief at Dread Central, it's Mr. Jonathan Barkan. Jonathan, hello. Hello, hello, how are you two doing? Very well, thank you, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Thank you for uh, bringing to the table Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. <laughs> yes, uh, a film that I will go ahead and start off by saying that when I first saw it, I was, I think, 15 or 16. I rented it on VHS. Okay. And I hated it. Right? Okay. <laughs> I really didn't like it. So not how these conversations generally start. I, I can only imagine, but what happened was uh, about... A year later, I suddenly found myself itching to revisit it, and I had no idea why, but I went, I re-rented it, and unbeknownst to me, what I had done was I'd originally seen the theatrical cut, and this time I rented it, the director's cut, and I ended up loving it. Oh, okay. Now, uh, I have to say, I, I had to rent this to watch it, but that's only because last week, before we knew you were coming on to do this, Jonathan, I had actually sold my copy away. What? Now, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> um, so, um, you mentioned the director's cut there, uh, Jonathan, and um, it bears mentioning, I think, that we both watched the same one. We both rented the one that you can get on a Prime Video in the UK, which was the theatrical. So, we might be counting on you to be our kind of director's cut spirit guide as we go through this thing. I can certainly help. Excellent. Wonderful. So, Jonathan, don't know if you've listened to the show before. We do generally get the guests to do one thing before we begin. This could be both particularly tricky and particularly important this week, I think. For the benefit of anyone who is listening to the show without having seen Lord of Illusions, we're going to put 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to count you in, and if you'd like to, and if you're ready, we'll be looking for you to give us your best 30-second synopsis of Lord of Illusions. How do you feel? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to fit in 30 seconds. That ooh yeah, that's this this is a tough movie to do so. Okay, I can uh, I'll try. Okay. Uh my only advice is do not underestimate how fast 30 seconds disappears. Are you ready? I'm nervous and I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions follows Harry Damore, a private detective who is sent to Los Angeles to investigate an insurance fraud. While that is happening, he suddenly finds himself in the middle of a strange supernatural series of events that surround Philip Swan, a world-famous magician, his wife Dorothea, and an ancient uh, correction, not ancient, but an old enemy of theirs by the name of Nix. As he delves deeper into this world, it Time. becomes cr Ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> We've had those go much, much worse than that. I think you got, you probably got about eighty percent of the way through there, so I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'll, I'll take eighty percent. It's a B minus. It's uh, I'll I'll accept it. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, I think that we should just uh, jump straight into this thing because there is a lot to unpack as we move through. So, I, you know what? It's interesting that you said that I'll be your kind of spiritual guide through the director's cut, but I'm really interested to know your thoughts on the theatrical because, I again, I haven't seen it for approximately 20 years. Wow. So uh, I'm really curious, what are your thoughts having just seen the film? Okay, so my first viewing concluded maybe 20 minutes ago. <laughs> You know, it's funny you say that because my latest viewing of the director's cut concluded about 20 minutes ago. Ah, look at oh, that. There you go. <laughs> um, Andy, you want to go first on this one? Um, yeah, I've got a bit of a complicated relationship with this. I actually kind of fall into the same bracket that Jonathan fell into the first time he saw it. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure I've ever seen the director's cut. I'm pretty sure from what Jonathan said I would remember if I had done. Um, but I've seen the, the theatrical cut a handful of times. Uh, it was the single disc 101 films version in the UK that I had that I recently gave away. And I'm pretty sure that that was just the theatrical. And I've never really liked the film. It feels like a bit of a, a mess. And that's, I would say, kind of the same way I came down on it this time. Although I did take a little bit more from it. I noticed a lot more, I think, because we're watching it for this purpose you're inclined to watch a little deeper. Yeah, I kind of I kind of noticed a lot of things that I liked a little bit more than I remembered. Um I'm roughly the same. I don't know if my opinion on this is fully formed to be honest because it's uh it's a lot to take in on first watch. <laughs> um yeah. and especially I think that as you as you kind of hit the third act and especially about the last 20 minutes just because it it kind of really changes gears in a way that I was not entirely ready for. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still kind of reeling from it a little bit. I'm kind of hoping that this conversation kind of uh, kind of helps drive me to a conclusion. Well, it, it's interesting, and, you know, I, I can't fault either of you. It's a very unique kind of horror film, and the theatrical cut, it cut out so many scenes that help move the plot along and help explain more about what's happening, and... I, it's it really is a much better film with the addition of something like twelve, maybe thirteen minutes. Okay, yeah, that's I mean, yeah, yeah that's that's a decent amount of time. I mean, I I think also that might and we'll like I say we'll we'll address them as they kind of as we go. But uh, I did find quite a lot of it to be kind of uh, emergence, like a lot of emerging facts and developments and things did happen kind of very abruptly and without explanation. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's completely true. I mean, the the editing in the theatrical cut is rather sloppy and it's simply because they cut out entire scenes right, right, that, right. that absolutely would have connected point a to point b but th by taking it out you go from point a to point you know f uh -huh. and there's a lot that's missing and um speaking of point a we begin in the mojave desert in 1982 although don't think you're going to find that out immediately you've got about 10 minutes to wait before you find out that juicy little tip but but I I really love the set design and the all this stuff really early on out in the desert. It's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets the Hills of Eyes. All the dead chickens and stuff is just your first kind of assault. I've always really liked how it opens, and then it gets a bit messy. It does the the set. You're right. It is a it's a beautiful set, and all of the art that is on the walls of this crumbling ramshackle hut for lack of a better word if i remember correctly all of that artwork was done by clive barker who did write and direct the film based on a a story of his and there is an atmosphere in there that's very off and it actually sets the tone for the rest of the movie incredibly well because you never feel like you're in someplace safe or comforting yeah. or even just remotely understandable and 
I think what this film does, at least in my opinion, is because we're entering the world of magicians and illusionists, and it's a very kind of secretive world, that is why this film feels like it's holding us at a little bit of an arm's length. Yeah. We are we are the interlopers entering into a world that we do not know and that we cannot understand. Yeah, and actually the film does very little in the way of kind of feeding you information. I'd say this whole first kind of scene up until Nix's death, it gives you kind of no guidance on what's going on whatsoever. You're like, who's this guy? Why has he got a mandrill? <laughs> like, it, it's just yeah, just wild. Yeah, I think that the actual chronology of what happens here is really interesting because you're right. I think that it does set out to kind of disorientate you right out of the gate. Because if I have this right, I think that what you see is um, Swan's car arriving, uh-huh. um, and a character like will come to learn as a young uh, Butterfield identifying their arrival. But you get no real illusion from that as to what that means, and then you get thrown straight into Nick's or the Puritans sermon as uh, like kind of sermonizing. And um, by that time, you know, you're kind of like two or three minutes into the action of the film. And um, I was very engaged, but also I already had a lot of questions. <laughs> well, that's that's what's great is usually you think a sort of uh, this isn't necessarily a flashback. It's it's a setup for everything that comes yeah. in the rest of the film, because the film takes place 13 years after the events that we start at. Yeah. But what's interesting is we start in 1982 but they've already put us in a place where we can tell that things happened prior to that. Because Swan, we find out, was a student of Nix's. But we never see that. He's only there to rescue a young Dorothea. So we see that the pupil has had a falling out, clearly, with the his master. But we were never introduced to that. So we're already thrown ahead of the start of this whole saga. Something else that's always jarred me slightly is the fact that in the the kind of 1982 scenes, they have J. Trevor Edmund from uh, Return of the Living Dead Part 3 and Pumpkinhead 2 playing Butterfield. But then when you jump to 1995, they've got this completely different guy who plays him for the rest of the film. That, that's always grated on me, the fact that they didn't just have the same guy play him and just age him up a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure why they did that. It's maybe it was a scheduling conflict. Maybe it was some kind of a like Clive Barker had a friendship. Who? I mean, it's one of those weird things that you, that you you'll probably never really know the answer to. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think that. But as this progresses, I think you kind of you pick apart for yourself the fact that the four people that have arrived to kind of uh, free Dorothea, who's been kidnapped, were all cult members at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, I think you you are kind of left to find that out on your own because Butterfield announces his arrival to this room. It seems to kind of interrupt this very bombastic sermon <laughs> about how um, yeah yeah it's about how the followers are going uh, he and his followers are going to cleanse the world and all this stuff. It's um again like out the gate knowing nothing about what you were signing up for because I flew into this completely blind. I didn't read a synopsis, know nothing. Uh, by that time, I was completely thrown for a loop. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, again, as you're, as we've said, this this film doesn't hold your hand. You are thrown into the midst of, as you said, this sermon, and Nix is, you know, saying these grand gestures. Uh, you know, we have to cleanse the world, and it's very cult-like. I mean, these are the things that we expect to hear from cult leaders, the kind of things that, you know, Jim Jones would say before passing out the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> except except here we actually have a visual proof that what he's saying 
has meaning. I mean, he's throwing around a ball of fire between his hands that's just floating above his palm. So whatever he's saying suddenly has more meaning because, hey, he's actually playing with magic. So he may very well cleanse the world. He's a very real villain from the beginning. Very much so. Very much so. And uh, doing that typically culty thing of surrounding himself with mostly attractive young women. <laughs> attractive young women and strange looking men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so just under no circumstances, no conventionally handsome guys. Just attractive women and weird looking men. It's that's how every cult should be, at least in the in movies. And if it's anything different, it's not a cult. It's just a friendly <laughs> gathering. <laughs> I think you should probably touch slightly on Daniel von Bargen as a as an actor, uh, obviously, his life went down a pretty dark road leading up to his death, sadly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think he's doing pretty good work in here. Uh, he's, for me, the right level of kind of evil, and there's still that level of campness and kind of playfulness in his performance that I really, really like. I actually always look forward to him coming back later in the film, because I, I really think, <laughs> yeah. he's, I think he's good value. Yeah, and but and that's also a testament to his performance in that he's only in the film in the beginning and at the end. There is no Nyx throughout the entire middle portion, and yet his presence is felt over everything. Oh yeah, they, they talk about him and they fear him, and everything about him is just this looming presence that he will be coming back, and we are just in anticipation and in this constant state of nervousness of when that will actually happen. Those mandrels are scary. I I remember watching a documentary about, a, I think a woman got her face chewed off by one of them. I don't think I'd be quite as comfortable as Daniel Von Bargen is uh, with one of them on a, on a leash. No, I, I certainly wouldn't be comfortable holding one either. Not only are they vicious creatures, but they look terrifying. I completely agree. Terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely terrifying. I actually think that like um this this entire this entire scene succeeds really well in kind of generally just being unsettling in its imagery because like, um obviously we see uh, like a couple of fairly formidable glimpses into Nix's powers, but ultimately he's uh he's shot in the back by who we figure out later to, who we find later to be Dorothea. Yeah, but his actual kind of like air quotes, death in the moment is horrible. You mean yeah. the, 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 the kind of binding ceremony with the mask and stuff? Yeah. Oh yeah, I think that stuff's great. Um, that's not, not, only, not only is the binding ceremony terrifying, but he gets shot three times. Like, on top of getting screwed over and having his magic sealed away, the guy got shot. It's, <laughs> he's, he's literally sitting there bleeding out and he's like, all right, this sucks. Now you're actually binding me? God, this is, this is the worst. <laughs> yeah, very, if you were un- ever under any doubt as to who wrote this or who directed it, the minute they start putting this contraption on his face, that pretty much answers that you're watching a Clive Barker film, I think. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And even everything sort of leading up to it, the atmosphere that we're in, the cult members, and then Nick's getting inside of Swan's head. It's it's all very Barker-esque. Yeah, I mean, you could watch, uh, I think, watching Hellraiser and Nightbreed and into this as well, It's he has a very, very distinctive style and a very, very kind of distinctive voice as a filmmaker, not just as a writer. Um, and I think it's so clear immediately when you're watching a Clive Barker-directed film. Yeah, because the thing is, you, you stop and think... Uh, If you look at Hellraiser, you look at Nightbreed, you look at Lord of Illusions, they kind of, in their own way, paved a new style of horror. Because when you see films that 
look like Hellraiser, you, the immediate thought is, oh, that's, they're inspired by Hellraiser. We don't look at Hellraiser and think, what was that inspired by? And it's the same thing with Nightbreed. Even though it's a monster movie, we don't really look back at something like Creature from the Black Lagoon or Frankenstein and see the influences there. And Lord of Illusions, I genuinely have trouble thinking of films that have a similar aesthetic, a similar style, and a similar presentation. Like, nothing jumps out to me. Yeah. After this, kind of, uh, Butterfield escapes, and we jump 13 years into the future to New York City, and again, I think that it does an interesting thing by not immediately introducing you to a character you're, you're familiar with from the opening scene. You know, the way they present Damore is so fascinating because right away, he's already broken. He's yeah. already damaged. And so you have, it's like, you know, starting a video game uh, and your character doesn't have the best weapons or, uh, you know, the immediate one that I think of is uh, either Destiny 2 when you start out and your light is taken away or Castlevania Symphony of the Night when death takes away all your equipment and you're like, well, that's great. I was really, I was a badass and now I can't do anything. I literally have to. I've got to punch ghouls in the face until I can get a dagger. Uh, and so and so, Damore is thrust into this world that is so expansive and so dizzying. And he's exhausted. He's already been torn down and beat down. And somehow he still has to make it through. Yeah. yeah. And if you're under any illusions of the kind of... Sorry to say illusions, Mitch. Um, <laughs> if you're under any any doubt as to the kind of character uh, Detective Harry Damore is, uh, he, when you first meet him, he is sitting at a desk. He's obviously a kind of moody character. He's wearing a vest with only a shoulder holster, and uh, he's got a visible bottle of liquor. So uh, you can tell he's a troubled detective. And then you're thinking, all I'm really needing is some uh, noir-style saxophone. And then just seconds later, and it comes. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things, God. I love the soundtrack to this movie so much. Oh, me too. I, I, I love Simon Boswell. And I really think he's doing great work here. Absolutely. We have a kind of expositional newspaper line around here that hints at uh, <laughs> what, um, the Exposition Gazette, kind of alluding to what Harry's kind of bro been broken by. Sure, yeah. Um, which is kind of which we kind of get a little bit more credence when his colleague boss um, uh, Loomis Loomis um, arrives. Exactly what Loomis's uh, relationship is to Harry in the film is unclear. They allude that he's kind of uh, his boss, or at least the guy that feeds him jobs. Yeah, like his cause... coordinator or scheduler or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that it's interesting, you know, because obviously the newspaper uh, articles kind of got uh, it's got like thing the things about exorcisms on there, and when Loomis comes in, he asks, was the girl possessed? We're getting ready for uh, Harry to come back to work, so I think, like, considering his last case was about a possessed girl, it seems kind of sensible to dispatch him to LA to investigate insurance <laughs> fraud. It's like a good phased return. <laughs> and I think that's what makes it also interesting, because this character that we are supposed to relate to and empathize with is also otherworldly, because he's a private detective, and yeah, we've all seen, you know, Chinatown and, you know, m movies like that, but suddenly this private detective is also involved in the world of the paranormal. Even then, there's a, that little bit of an arm's length distance. We are ultimately people that are not able to be intimate with the film, but that doesn't mean that we can't observe and be fascinated by what we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what I like. I really like the, little, the very, very brief glimpse into what Harry endured uh, during the exorcism. Mm -hmm. 
to, I would like to see a little bit more of that. In the director's cut, you actually do see a little bit more, oh. but it never goes into the actual exorcism itself. So we never see Harry performing any rituals. We just see more of the fallen angel-looking character yeah. snarling and dripping blood and uh, kind of mocking Demora and how close he is to from being a uh, a fighter for good to a weapon of evil. And I think like that's that would have been good enough for me. I think I agree with you, Andy. I think like when you see that, when you see that kind of because it really is just seconds in the yeah. theatrical cut of the kind of flashback to what he'd been through. Um, I don't know if I would have liked to have seen it kind of spaced out through there, but I, it's so instantaneous here that I kind of I was like, oh, that looked kind of cool. Can I see a little more. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, in the director's cut, so I don't remember in the theatrical cut. Does that winged? Does that kind of creepy looking demon? Does it talk to Demore? Yeah, yeah, it's got the taste. The, it says taste the darkness. Yep. Um, the less successful slogan for Skittles marketing. <laughs> and so it's it's great because that line is repeated in the few times that we revisit that moment and then uh, jumping very far ahead uh, when Nix and Demore come face to face, that line comes back. Yeah. So it, it by having it appear throughout, we constantly see just how close Harry is to kind of teetering into the abyss. It's it's really interesting that, like you say, so when, when we see that again, is it always that line that you hear? Uh, yes, you'll always see, uh, you know, taste the darkness to more. It's waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, okay. That and yeah, I, I mean, I it's only, it is only that once in the theatrical, but I did spot that that was what Nick said to him at the end. Mm -hmm. No, yep. it's cool. It's interesting. And um, but yeah, he heads to LA, and uh, yeah, <laughs> ostensibly doing something considerably more dull. <laughs> Although he's looking pretty cool, because the first time we see him, he's got a nice pair of brown slacks uh, and a brown waistcoat over a lovely red t-shirt. It's business time. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, uh, in the theatrical cut, does it show him watching the insurance guy uh, oh, yeah. at the motel? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> that's the guy who's living large. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's living large on his uh, ill-gotten gains, for sure. I just love that line where Harry's talking into the microphone uh, and he's saying, Tappert's paying by the hour. He's getting his money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that he wisecracked in that microphone knowing that the only person that would ever listen to that back was himself. That was for him yep. to enjoy again later. Uh, maybe it was for Loomis <laughs> to prove that he was actually doing the, the job he was getting paid for. Uh, we also get our first glimpse here of the massive poster advertising Swan's magic show. Uh <laughs> which uh, kind of just looks like a cross between Chris Angel and David Copperfield. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what they're trying to go for, because that was certainly at the time when those kinds of acts were very large and at their height. So this film really fit into the cultural zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, looking at it now, it seems so antiquated. Like, who do we really have that is doing this kind of... Uh, theatricality with illusions yeah. uh, around the world. I guess Penn and Teller are still doing it. Yeah, they're still doing it, that's true. But yeah. they're really the only I people I can think of. Yeah, I think anybody else who's been doing things on that kind of scale have kind of come and gone in that time. But you're right, it does. It, like, I wouldn't necessarily say that it dates the film, but it does look a little weird now. There, this is true. The film is very much a product of the 90s, and it embraces oh, yeah. that visual style, that production style. Like, if... If you're into 90s horror, then you'll get a there's a lot that you'll get out of this. If you're not into it, then there might be some moments where you look and you're like, "Okay, I I'm having issues with this." <laughs> but 
I, I don't know why. I just, I've always, well, if, apart from the first viewing, I've always enjoyed it. Mm. Um, I think that the way that Harry kind of stumbles into the events of the rest of the film here is totally bizarre and something that I kind of, I really like. So he follows the insurance guy Tappert to a um, to a fortune teller. Quite easy to follow, given that he has a large pompadour haircut, which <laughs> rides above the crowd. <laughs> and he's able to follow it from a considerable distance. Yeah, which he does. And um, yeah, finds his way to a, um, a fortune teller. And I, re- like, I really like the fact that he just kind of follows him up the stairs. And before he's even gotten to the top of the stairs, Tappert, the insurance guy, is kind of pushing his way past him to get away again. I was like, what's going on in here? No wonder. Yeah. Because the tableau that he's met with is, uh, frankly, horrifying. It's That's the thing. Clive Barker creates visuals that are genuinely unsettling and that you don't really feel like you've ever seen before. So seeing this fortune teller with multiple scalpels just sticking straight out of him, it's basically, imagine Pinhead, but if it was scalpels instead of pins and it was all over the body. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's just really awful. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, it really is fucking horrible to look at. And I, like, I kind of I recoiled from it when I saw it um, initially. I think so it's interesting. It's interesting because I also just showed, while I, while I watched the film, my girlfriend is in town and I showed it to her it was her first time and anytime something like that happened she let out a visible oh because (laughs) it really is it really is something so unique and different and whether or not you can kind of emotionally resonate with it doesn't with the film doesn't necessarily matter because these moments are still so shocking and brutal that uh, you know just by virtue of being human you feel bad for the person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you spent some time at the weekend with Nicholas Vince. Yeah. Who I know quite well. I had I had him in one of my films. Nick has also worked with Clive Barker loads of times, but Nick is the most squeamish man alive. He is such a delightful guy. And it, <laughs> Isn't it's, he? Fascinating. it's it's what's really fascinating is it that the people who often are dressed up in the most horrifying costumes and do the most horrifying things are almost always going to be the most delightful, kind, and loving human beings in real life. You can pull us linear now, Mitch, thanks. That's my only function on this podcast, is to pull us linear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just before um, uh, Harry finds the kind of horrific scene that we're talking about, he's kind of set upon in uh, the lobby on the way in by this, I don't know the character's name if he has one, but this kind of wiry, bald kind of... Travis Bickley looking guy. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. Travis Bickle with fangs. Yeah, he exactly. weirdly has the mouth of a shark. Yeah. He's a great face. And again, that's one of those moments where you think this is a very human looking character, but they're not human. Yes. Like, what is this? Is this part of this strange world that I'm not really allowed to be in? Is this someone who is doing whatever it takes to get into it? It's... You know, I'm I'm not one to shame people for being a part of the body modification community. Many of my friends are heavily involved in that world as either piercers or tattoo artists or people who are on the receiving end of those crafts. But I will say that he did so many shocking things to his body. He has that symbol that is kind of either scarified or raised between his eyes. And he's filed all of his teeth down to points. It's a a rather shocking looking character. 
Yeah, I, th I think he's a, a really strong-looking character who's actually, for my money, gone too soon. Yeah, but it, at the same time, I think it's an interesting play to have such a physically imposing character get taken out around the middle point of the film yeah. because you still have the tension and fear of Nick's. No matter what, anybody they throw at Harry yeah. is not going to compare to the fear that everyone is feeling when it comes to the Puritan. And uh, throw themselves at Harry, this gentleman does, uh, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I really like the various stages to Harry defeating this guy at this point. Yeah, I, th I think I think it's eventually the third attempt that he gets him and he throws him out of a window. I mean, <laughs> I mean um, previously kind of just kind of subdued him just by kind of getting the better of him when he jumped him and then landing a few blows and then getting in. But then he goes from again and he just knocks him out with the door. <laughs> And then you get this kind of like get this protracted scene with Quaid, and then uh, yeah, eventually uh, third time's a charm. He throw him out a window, punches him out a window. But you think it's it's such a, it's almost like a Looney Tunes moment totally. because yeah, you know Harry slams the door against the guy's head and he's knocked out. But then he gets back up and he claws his way around the door handle, ripping it. Yeah. from the door. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, a lock means absolutely nothing. But it is very, very Looney Tunes as he's scrambling against the door and then he starts lunging at it with his shoulder and then Harry just kind of steps back at exactly the right moment so the guy bursts through unaware that he's going to and then he starts beating the crap out of him against the window, knocks him out and the guy falls with a hilarious thud and if you look, you can absolutely see that it's a mannequin. It's just... It's, uh, it's incredibly Rigid. <laughs> uh, right. This, I think that we should probably establish it um, a little bit of a timeline and what actually happens in the main kind of encounter here. Because what you have is um, wh who will learn to be Quaid, one of the four from the uh, kind of prologue. Now sporting an insane amount of facial piercings. Yeah. And also, an ins as you said, Jonathan, um, an unhealthy amount of scalpels in his chest. <laughs> More than a few. Yeah, <laughs> more than more than would be considered medically advisable. Um, but yeah, we also kind of it's established that the kind of uh, the person who's put him here, the person who's done this to him, uh, is uh, Butterfield. Yeah, the um, escapee from the beginning as well. Not well, the guy who escapes the scene, should I say? I find uh, Butterfield's attire choices throughout the film entirely distracting. Yeah, he. It's a very flamboyant wardrobe. <laughs> yep, that's a fair, that's a fair <laughs> way of putting it. When when we when we see him in the very beginning, he's wearing incredibly short shorts. I mean, he's sitting <laughs> at, at the compound carving that skull with his thighs splayed open to the world. We're we're pretty much one cloth away, one strand of one thread from seeing his testicles <laughs> flop out onto onto the chair. Yep, it's it really is someone who is. Uh, very comfortable with his body, and the I think the indication that we're given is that he's a gay character, but that never plays into oh, no, no. the film. It's, no, no. it's not something that... We don't see him have a relationship. We don't see him uh, kind of eye anybody with romantic interest. It's just a villainous character who happens to be gay, which... Again, that's something that Clyde Barker is known for doing. He definitely injects a lot of gay characters hmm. into his into his work. Oh, and then, yeah. coming back to the prologue, when Nix had the mandrel against Dorothea, Butterfield was rather uncomfortably close to Nix. Like, rather than standing nearby and asking, you know, should I kill Swan, he's like six inches from Nix's ear. Like he's right there. It's there's something going on. Yeah. That's 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 a fair assessment, I think. Um 
Bartle escapes the scene here, and um, like we said, this was happening in a fortune teller's office, and Quaid, professional to the last, even with multiple scalpels in his chest, does uh, read Harry's palm. <laughs> the last I thing mean, that's, that's precisely what I thought I would do in that situation, yeah. The last yeah. thing I would be thinking of is uh, continuing with my job. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the... Uh the work lifestyle you know you've got you know hey we're calling you and oh i'm feeling really sick that's okay you can die on the job yeah it's like <laughs> it's, also i get the impression he's like well we're closing in 20 minutes but a customer's a customer <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but yeah he um uh he gives him a like a fairly ominous fortune reading very much a something evil this way comes kind of thing talks about how he's gonna have to walk the line between heaven and hell uh, then dies before he can elaborate. Of course. And at this point, yeah, we also discover that um, uh, our Travels Bickle alike, um, or Monsters Travels Bickle, has escaped. Despite he looked quite a lot, he looked very dead on impact, but he's gone. Again, it's the uh, it's this awareness that he looks otherworldly, and it's even from the very very beginning of the film when they bring up those few lines about the difference between uh, magicians and illusionists, where they say that something along the lines of even death is an illusion. So. Something is going on here, and mm-hmm. we and if and if you can't kill this monstrous-looking creature, at least in this point in, of the film, then what chance do we have? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we get Famke Janssen making an appearance here. The second film we've done actually that has Famke Janssen and Kevin J. O'Connor in it after Deep Rising, Mitch. This is see, it's all coming full uh, full circle. That's it. Yeah, that's it. yeah. And this will be the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, just just before we get to this, we have a very brief aside scene between that character and uh, Butterfield discussing uh, the. Kind of the return of Nick, since he's just what we're talking about imagery that really set my teeth on edge. Um, you're talking about the glass, yeah. When he's like, when he's kind of just having this conversation very matter of factly, but also yanking these gigantic shards of glass out of himself. That, ugh. Yeah, and then and meanwhile, Butterfield and he's like, okay, you got a bunch of glass in you, just take care of it. I'm too busy thinking about all these wickedly cool tools that I have on my table, and also worrying about this Harry Demore character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he certainly he was pretty passive about the fact that his colleague urgently required medical attention. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dorothea enlists uh, Valentin, who I'm not really familiar what what his role is. Let's just back to that before we get to that, though, because we leap ahead and meet Swan and everything at this point. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, so we rejoin Swan uh, from the beginning. At this point, he is now this very famous illusionist that's been kind of alluded to. Um, and yeah, he lives with uh, Dorothea, played here by Famke Janssen. Swan's pretty depressed, uh, obviously, at the, the death of, I guess it was his friend. He decides that in his upcoming show, he wants to install a new illusion. However, Dorothea is won over by a photograph of Harry the Moor in the paper, and it enlists Valentine's help. And finding him, she says, look, I want you to go and locate Harry, which he does instantly, because in the next scene, they are walking together in a graveyard. So, Jonathan, a couple of questions here. Um, yes. Valentine, quite like to know exactly what you think his role is here. And also, as Andy said, Dorothea says, Valentine, can you find Harry Demur? He immediately says yes, and literally in the next frame is walking with him in a graveyard. I'd like to know if that was anything, if that was expanded at all in the director's cut. That was very much expanded in the director's cut. So, Valentine, to my understanding, is basically Philip Swan's, I guess, assistant or... Uh, just something where he has enough pull. It's like a mix between a butler and a manager and an assistant. I'm not sure. But he kind of fulfills all of those roles, which is why he is intimately close with both Philip and Dorothea, why he lives at their house. 
I think it's one of those kinds of relationships. So he's like he's like and a, he's like a Dick Grayson. Kind of, yeah. It's like Dick Grayson with uh, Alfred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yes, that scene I remember that from the theatrical cut where it's please find him, and then suddenly boom, they're in the graveyard, and that felt incredibly awkward. And in the director's cut, there's an entire scene where Valentin is at uh, Harry's hotel room uh, at, at the door, and he's knocking and. Harry Demore is like, I'm leaving. I'm, you know, I'm going away. Uh, I've got another job. And Valentin says, Does your other job pay you five thousand dollars a day? Right. And Demore opens it, and you know, wisecracks. Does that include lunch? And next thing after that, then they're in Philip Swan's car, and they have an entire little discussion between them about the difference between a magician and an illusionist, which also reveals that. Valentin is a bit of an illusionist himself. Okay, that's See, that's a lot yeah, of stuff to say there. That would be pretty. That stuff would be quite helpful. That's yeah, cool. it's yeah. it's an enormous amount missing. I um, guess that a lot of that was probably pacing. It might have been, but the thing is, those those scenes never felt awkward. If anything, they felt very right. And if if we're thinking pacing issues, by removing them, you inject pacing issues rather than solve them. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. See, just before we get into the meat of this conversation, we had, as soon as we announced that we were doing uh, this film, a listener tweeted us and something that he thought was really funny, and I knew it was coming because of this. But basically, it's a classic Kenneth Clive Barkerism in that uh, when they arrive at the graveyard and the conversation's happening and they see Dorothea off in the distance, Harry says, who's that? Valentin says, Swan's wife. And the sprinkler just kind of ejaculates water yeah. into the uh, air. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Classic spunk sprinkler joke. <laughs> no, uh, Clive Barker has so much sex in his work. It's it's completely undeniable. I mean, even in Hellraiser, there's that famous line, what is it? Uh, pain and pleasure indistinguishable. Yeah. So there's, it's constantly throughout his work that sex and horror are very much intertwined. So Harry lusting after Dorothea makes total sense because let's admit it, uh, Famke Janssen is stunningly beautiful. And I think anyone with a pulse would look at her and say, yes, that is a delightful human being. Yep. Very, very much so. Yep. <laughs> um, you're not going to get any argument from me, Jonathan. Yeah. Nope, nope, same. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we've got some consensus on the big questions here. <laughs> the the bombing <laughs> question. But, yeah, so she's kind of uh, enlisting him here to, it seems like, investigate Quaid's death? Yeah, and kind of circumventing Swan to do so. And then she invites Harry to come along and kind of get this more in-depth look at the world of illusions and magic by inviting them to the show, which is amazing. Um, Andy, you described this as the point where the film kind of markedly barkers up, and I think that that's fair. Well, I feel that the show is very much Clive Barker directing a magic show he would want to see. And that's absolutely perfect. That's the way it should be. But this stuff reminds me of really, like... There was a lot of kind of magicians doing kind of extreme stuff around about this time, like Simon Drake. He did a lot of kind of horror-themed stuff. He did uh, the, I don't know if you ever seen the Iron Maiden live video, uh, Raising Hell, or I think it was called. And uh, I feel like Clive Barker probably looked into some of those guys himself. No, that that magician sequence, the, the show, you're, you're absolutely right. Because you look at the people on the stage, the dancers, the, these assistants that are there to help with the show, but they themselves are wearing highly sexualized clothing that is, you know, barely covering their naughty bits. <laughs> and they're all incredibly muscular and and just beautifully moving around. 
And meanwhile, there's this kind of strange Baphomet-looking statue <laughs> yeah. lurking in the background. And just everything about the stage feels like it's from another world. Just, again, kind of hammering home the point that we are all audience members to a show that we cannot participate in. I'm absolutely sold by the show. I, I'm not a big magic guy, but I even watching this, I was into it. 100%. I, I would absolutely pay, uh, you know, a good $100 for a ticket to that show. I got. I, I love the sarcophagus full of sand, and then not so much the levitating, although if I was there, I would have been thoroughly impressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, at this point, we see that, um, because uh, like you say, with the kind of, we see this at the start of the show, the opening of the show is totally spectacular, um, and uh, we see the Butterfield and colleague have yeah. arrived, and uh, the death of or the air quotes death of swan is remarkable i think it's a phenomenal set piece and a just fantastic sequence whether or not you like the movie i think everyone can agree that that sequence is jarring yeah i i actually think that this entire show sequence and the kind of aftermath down kind of underneath the stage and then the kind of last moments of the film are my favorite moments in isolation in the whole film yeah so the actual the kind of death itself he's he's tied to this kind of spinning board uh there's like kind of like these huge these huge kind of swords above him that are dropping <laughs> um so he dodges the first two uh the next three i think each get him in an individual limb then two in the torso and then a, one more final kind of death blow to the stomach um i think that the audience don't, react- don't forget oh. do not forget that one also hit him in a very personal place for men. Yes, of course, of course. And, uh, yeah, inevitably, I guess, one was yeah. going to get it's, in there. It's, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, oh, it's a Clyde Barker death? Let me get, let me guess. Something happened to the genitalia. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the audience reaction as this goes wrong is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, when you're in a situation like that, when you think, when you see illusionists you're going to see people sawn in half you're going to see kind of really fascinating tricks you're going to see all of these different experiences where limbs are going to either disappear or seem off where where the physical body is going to change and so at first this seems like a trick this seems like something that they paid their money for and only as it goes along do they start getting the inkling that it's not right that these screams are real yeah yeah i think the entire way that unfolds is really kind of really nicely done yeah and i always think the best illusions are the ones that come with that kind of hint of danger oh yeah Yeah, i can completely agree yeah um so obviously we kind of we get a close-up look of this uh dorothea is kind of understandably devastated then uh straight (laughs) off the back of this um not for long well yeah but um uh, Harry Harry has a kind of a, a physical fight with uh, Butterfield and um, Sharkface. Yeah, um, <laughs> Sharkface um, and uh, Sharkface. Like you say, Andy, gone um, all too soon for for my liking. Uh, but in but his death, his death is spectacular. Oh, it's it's just what I was gonna say. Yeah, it's uh, it's so good. Yeah, he kind of like a, this gigantic stage prop with a kind of long, kind of either snout or tongue, kind of impales him. Yeah, yeah, super yep. effective. And- and I guess that uh, in the director's cut, there's a little bit more added into that death sequence where you actually see the pipe break through his back and blood just gushing out of it. Oh, okay, cool. 
Yeah, um, it certainly seems cut a little tighter in the in the release we watched. Yeah, not to mention also actually, and I don't know if this is a, a, a this is a difference as well, but how quickly that actual that actual encounter comes on feels quite sudden as well. But maybe it's played that way. Um, yeah, and I think that was that there wasn't much difference there. Like that whole fight sequence is there's a minimal amount added to the director's cut. Okay. Um, at this point, I wrote down. I keep desperately trying to learn character names, then giving up because they immediately die. <laughs> That's absolutely it's, fair. That's a, I can completely go with that. Um, I think that this uh, the film kind of takes a re- an even sharper turn at the surreal here because obviously Harry kind of uh, he establishes that he's going to stick around, try and piece this together, um, and then convenes with other illusionists um, at the Magic Castle. What is the Magic Castle exactly? The magic- so the Magic Castle is an actual like building and restaurant and event place in Los Angeles. And I've driven by it many, many times. I've never been inside of it because, first of all, you need a suit, which I do not own, and I'm not ready to spend a lot of money on that. Uh, and then you need a reservation, and those can often be – you have to wait like a long time. And third, it really helps if you know someone. Right, sure. So this is a very secretive place. Now, it's interesting that you talk about how he starts kind of convening with these other illusionists because there is an almost two-minute segment between Harry saying, I can be very persuasive to Dorothea when he says he's going to stick around, and him talking with the other illusionists. There's a whole other section uh, in between those two moments. Well, this is another thing that felt really abrupt. Yeah. When he just shows up there, because I was kind of, I was like, wait, where are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in this, uh, in the sequence that we see, I don't know if you saw it in... Um, in the theatrical cut, but we see Harry Damore kind of walking up the driveway to the Magic Castle, going in, and then he actually goes to the bar where he meets another magician, a guy by the name of Walter Wilder, and they talk for a little bit. Harry kind of fakes that he's a magician from New York that he's visiting, and that he kind of wants to get in good with the other illusionists. And it turns out that there's a bit of a gatekeeping situation. If you don't know them, then it's very difficult to get in. However, Walter, being the nice, old, wonderful gentleman that he is, he says, you know me, so let's go. And he and uh, Walter explains a little bit about the repository where all of the secrets of magic that are known are kept, and the only person who has the key is Vinovich, who we do see in the sequence that you are talking about. Yeah. And a, a very welcome appearance by Vincent Chiavelli as Vinovich here. Yeah, it's and what I love is that he lays on that accent really thick. Yeah. Like it's he's really trying to be that very kind of mysterious. <laughs> I am I am the magician. I have this I don't even know what accent I'm doing. It's definitely not his accent. I'm, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's, it's the uh, count from Sesame Street. <laughs> Yeah, it, it very well might be. And then there's that great moment where Harry's just like, yeah, it's a great accent. What is it, Brooklyn? And the guy's like, hey, fuck <laughs> you, man. <laughs> and, and it just, his character breaks entirely, and it's just so good. That is so satisfying, because he turns on Swan really quite sharply in this scene. I mean, I, I think that everyone was jealous. What we're seeing is that there was a big amount of jealousy of Philip Swan, and that his death means that they no longer have to be jealous. They're never going to get what he had, but now they no longer have to compete with it. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, we also meet uh, another illusionist, Billy Who. Oh, yeah. I love Billy Who. Um, pretty useful uh, pretty useful exposition delivery vessel is Billy. Kind of talks here <laughs> about uh, Nick's possibly teaching uh, uh, Swan uh, years mm-hmm. previously, and all this kind of thing. Um, 
again, how he kind of like uh, connects the dots for this to be relevant, I feel that feels a little kind of a, a little bit abrupt and a little bit out of nowhere. Um, but they, as like, but that's kind of like, I think that that seems to be the kind of purpose of that scene broadly is to kind of see that in Harry's mind. Yeah. But I think it's also, it's once again, that we see that this world has its own history, its own kind of, uh, you have these people that have been through an enormous amount through their own training. They spoke amongst each other and learned, they, they gossiped. I mean, let's be honest, in any industry, you're going to have people gossiping and you're going to have insider talk. And so Billy knows about these things because that's the world that he's a part of. And so by him sharing it, we see that this is, that the world that he's in is basically like every other world that we that we see i mean you look at a restaurant industry all of the waiters the wait staff and managers and uh kind of the chefs they have their own lingo their own language their own talk that we will never understand unless we're a part of that world mm-hmm. and it's the same thing with illusionists yeah i think that off the back of this when harry takes his information and he has the conversation on the phone with dorothea if i was harry i would be promoting dorothea immediately to person of interest um in this investigation <laughs> uh, because she is incredibly secretive about why she's married and uh, suspiciously hesitant to say anything about uh jennifer who's mentioned in the previous scene who's um one of the girls from the beginning and uh, also nicks as well so i was kind of like from just from a purely outsider's perspective pattern of erratic behavior in my estimation <laughs> Yeah, she would definitely be uh, suspect number one. <laughs> but uh, Jennifer Desiderio's character, she uh, isn't around for long. Again, Mitch, uh, if you hadn't learned her name, it wouldn't be a massive loss. She would just be a body. <laughs> She'd just be a body under a car because moments after you meet her, you get a little bit of story about her kind of her relationship to Swan. Yeah, he goes to see her in a mental hospital. A mental hospital. Another one, Mitch. You can add that to the ever-growing list of films we've done that include mental hospitals. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, she's gone as soon as she arrives, really. Um. So that sequence, for some reason, I'm, I'm remembering that it was shorter in the theatrical cut. Can you walk me through what happened there? It's certainly yeah. pretty abrupt. Um, so he basically, he mentions uh, Jennifer on the phone to uh, Dorothea and then basically just resolves to go and see her. And honestly, it's pretty much in the next frame. He goes to the mental hospital that she is in. Um, he starts talking to her about um, Swan, uh, yeah. who she seems to only have a very hazy recollection of. Mentioned Nick's as well. At this point, she kind of clams up, gets kind of hysterical, and says kind of things like, "Oh, I can't say anything. He'll hear me," and things like that. She takes off running and um, yeah. th- and throws herself in front of a car. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. It's it's yeah. pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's a weird kind of walk and talk moment. Um, that actually doesn't really bring anything to it apart from a very, very scary nun uh, who kind of follows behind Jennifer while she's having this conversation. Um, I mean, all you have to say is that there's a nun and we'll know that it's a very, very scary <laughs> nun. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Especially in the films that we cover, it's like, oh, this uh, scene adds nothing apart from a very friendly, benign nun. <laughs> <laughs> what I love, though, uh, firing into the next scene as Harry decides the best course of action here is to break into the repository at the Magic Castle, which he does with the help of Billy Who. I think it's hilarious that there's only three people in the world who have a key to this repository, but it's dead easy to open a skylight and just jump in. I mean, you got to suspend your disbelief a little. <laughs> a little. Agreed, agreed. I think in this film, that's probably for the best. Yes, Absolutely. 
Uh, but did you uh, did you enjoy the cheesiness of the projected monster that oh, looks straight out of Ghostbusters? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like if it's easy to break into, at least they've got like uh, pretty good security in the form of demonic holograms and traps. Holograms. It's booby trapped. It's pretty great. Yeah, there seems to be a, a booby trap hidden behind what looks like a mural of Tony Stark. <laughs> You're, you're you're not wrong. It's Tony Stark if he were a circus ringmaster. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, like I like that scene's that scene's crazy, but it's a lot of fun. I think that like I, yeah. I, it's um it's got some great creature stuff in there as well. Yeah, I, I really like the kind of weird illusory brain hologram thing. Um, I really like that guy. So I'm not sure when this scene shows up. I think it's right around right around there but there is by the way another segment of harry he's in his hotel room he's sleeping the like the wrong way across the bed like you imagine <laughs> where your head where your head lays on the pillows just turn him 90 degrees and he's sleeping like that With, <laughs> the, the, he, the pillows are quite literally four inches from his head and he didn't think to move the pillow under his head the only <laughs> time you, you, the only time you sleep in that position is if you fall that way drunk Exactly, and so no wonder he has nightmares, but he sees that uh, very pale, white-haired, demonic creature kind of kneeling at the foot of his bed, and it has these un- these strange-looking wings that are actually made out of big, uh, k- big knives, kind of the same, I wouldn't say machetes, but they look like the knives that you hold when you're cutting through vines. Oh. In a jungle, and oh, wow, blood okay. is dripping from his hand and pooling at the foot of the bed, and Harry uh, jerks awake after it kind of hisses at him, and then the film continues. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, we, we, yeah, we didn't get any of that. No, none of that. Um, no, I would have liked some of that as well, but yeah, yeah I'll take all that you got. But so <laughs> what happened after Jennifer Desiderio's death? Um, That's wh- the the magic castle. Yeah, they head to the ma- they head to the magic castle after that, um, which is the yeah the scene we just discussed, and then okay, yeah that that is different because after Jennifer Desiderio's death, there is apparently a uh, at least from what I'm reading online, there is a a new sequence. So you remember all of those cult members from the beginning of the film? Yeah. So at the end of the film, we see that they're at the compound. But did you find yourself thinking, "What have they been there this entire time?" Yeah, because it was never like a. There was never like, and I wondered if it was something that was missing, like this kind of clarion call to action that was issued to these and, people. And it absolutely happens. There is this ah. entire sequence where three they focus on three main characters from the cult and follow them around the country. They've each received a letter that says homecoming time. And so there's uh, one guy who he's packing his suitcase and he opens a closet door and you see his wife at the bottom of the closet with bruise marks around her neck. She's been strangled to death. All right. And then... Then we cut to another place where a mother has set down a bloody knife and she's washing her hands. And we see that her husband and her young daughter, like probably six or seven years old, are face first in their breakfast, blood everywhere. And then she just very callously steps over what is probably like a four-year-old son who's laying on the ground with stab wounds and blood everywhere. And the last one is the snake guy from the very beginning. He has... Uh, he was working in a zoo, and he broke out a bunch of snakes, and one of the security guards is laying on the ground with 
enough bite marks on his face that he looks like Freddy Krueger and there's venom seeping out of a few of the the bites. Fucking hell. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. much <laughs> <laughs> pretty much covers it. I can't believe they got that. That meant that would have solved again, like you say, that the fact that um you see all the cult members just kinda around yeah, yeah. and your question is like, what have you been doing all this time it, it like it's it seems like a really silly inconsistency and it's such a shame that it's answered in such a amazing sentence way that we um that, it, that it's lost in the theatrical yeah so um i wanted to ask because i think that scene that i just spoke about is actually before harry goes to the magic castle but i might be wrong right um did harry call the Swan residents get Valentin, and then Valentin said that it was a crank call. No, I'm I, don't pre- I, I don't remember that. I very well could have, the, um, the but only, I don't remember. The only phone call I remember him having, uh, he he's woken by the phone ringing, I think, and he talks to Dorothea. But I don't remember <laughs> him. I don't remember him calling them. Yeah, so there's a scene where Harry calls the Swan residents. Valentin picks up, and at this point, Valentin's like, "You need to go away. Like, I I don't want you." you know, checking this out again. Because if I remember in the theatrical cut, he tried to offer Harry about $30,000. Yeah, he told him, Yeah, just, just get out of here. Like, you're done. And Harry's like, no, the case isn't over. Well, so during this investigation, he calls the Swan residents to talk to Dorothea, and Valentin basically doesn't allow that to go through, even though Dorothea is just a few feet away. Right. And when she asks, like, who was that? He just says, it was a crank call. I'll get the number changed. Oh, I see. So he's okay. really trying to protect Dorothea from Demore, and Dorothea even says, "Have you heard from Harry? I really want to speak with him." It seems like a lot was cut out. Yeah, oh, man. seems uh, yeah. yeah, which seems a real shame. Uh, he eventually does make his way back there, though. They are set upon again, and Harry keeps going back to his strategy of trying to shoot ghosts. Uh, <laughs> briefly, um, are you talking about uh, the the weird kind of origami geometric thing? Yeah, that kind of uh, yeah, that kind of manifests in front of them. Uh, yeah, the the, the folder ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but once they've kind of survived that exchange, we get to kind of like I think that kind of your major kind of like second act plot development, which is um, Harry opens the casket of swans. Uh, which, by the way, if he had gotten this wrong, this was a risky maneuver. Um, <laughs> he uh, opens the casket of Dorothy, his late husband, and is like, "This this is a ruse," and yanks his jaw. Yeah, he could have. Torn the jaw off a corpse, Clean off, yep. uh, and that would have been very embarrassing. You don't, you could imagine his thirty grand payday disappearing quite quickly. Um, I, I think that would be the end of the investigation. Dorothea would be like, "Hey, it was nice. You did some good work. Get the fuck out." I'm calling. <laughs> <And laughs> exactly. By this point, they've had sex. That's true. Yeah, they had sex in the previous scene, and in the director's cut, it is an extended sequence. So you do see uh, more of them, kind of. You know, canoodling. Oh, I see. I'll, I'll okay. be honest with you. I'm fine with that. I think they're both attractive people. Um, we get a really good look at uh, Scott Bakula's lovely hairy chest. Uh, did you see the moment where Harry is laying on his back with his leg cocked to the side <laughs> and Dorothea's head resting, perfectly covering his genitalia? Yeah, like she's I, using it like a neck cushion. I did see that. I did notice that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just I mean, the, the balls either okay. side of the neck. Yeah, it's it, it, you know sometimes you got to think that uh, a man's nether bits make for a very comfortable pillow. <laughs> I mean, as, as the old saying goes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, um, it is established at this point that um, yeah, the, that Harry has an amazing back tattoo. Uh, well, um, the jaw snaps off in his hand when he tries to do this, and it's established that uh, 
Swan's faked his death. He has, yes. yes. Uh, Valentin has rigged a trap to fail, and uh, their kind of next reaction to this is to all acquiesce to the idea of going through with a fake funeral. <laughs> um, which they do, and um, kind of as a direct offshoot from the funeral, uh, I think that Harry catches kind of, he finds his way back to Swan, and I think that. He catches a glimpse of him at the funeral. Swan comes to watch his own funeral. Yeah, um, and this is, I think this is how everyone would be caught out in this situation. I think that if you fix your death, I think that the temptation to go to your own funeral would be overpowering. But he's got a moustache. He's got the stash, he's got the hat. It's very Walter White. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the moustache is one of the worst possible uh, additional kind of disguise mechanisms that you can have it, to me it's up there with Clark Kent's glasses <laughs> it's you know it's it's amazing how much facial hair can change how you look and as someone who very proudly has a beard and mustache uh, the last time I shaved it all off genuinely people had trouble recognizing me I've had that problem before as well oh yeah me, um, and as have I but uh, yeah I feel the moustache alone isn't as successful a disguise tool as the the full the full beard and moustache look if it works for Super Mario it can work for Philip Swan <laughs> <laughs> I feel that Mario's is a style choice <laughs> um I like what happens here when um uh kind of Harry finds Swan and they have this kind of like very terse exchange and it's only a little bit into it that we kind of pan back and you realize that one of the reasons why it's terse is because um Swan is uh kind of like hovering a car over Harry yeah kind of yeah. ready to drop it at any moment I like this I like this I like this confrontation in general I think it kind of gets a story where it needs to go, but I think that it's just kind of it's pretty good watching these two work off each other here. It's 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 a solid conversation because I mean you, you got to think from Philip Swan's perspective, he chose willingly to die, uh, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to protect Dorothea, and Dorothea, who has openly admitted in various conversations that she didn't marry Philip for love, has already found herself in the arms of another man. So he's sitting here like, wow. I'm, I'm like I'm not even gone a day, and you're already shacking up with someone. But I can't really be upset because I'm dead. So you know what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And and Harry's like, uh, please don't drop a car on me. That's all I ask. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, you're right. It is very abrupt. I mean, like they like they didn't even change the sheets. But like, um, but yeah, what we get here as well is kind of um, Swan is of the opinion that Nick, if he's coming back, he's going to be mad about the betrayal from the kind of former cult members. But specifically, if he's after anyone, it'll be uh, Dorothea for the small matter of her shooting him in the chest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you shoot someone in the back, it's bound to you know be a memorable event. Yep, and uh, yeah, the kind of thing that you might want to follow up on, given the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, the least you could have done was send Nick's a I'm sorry, get better card. <laughs> exactly. Um, while this is going on, I kind of feel like what, like there's a, kind of a, quite a lot of pieces moving around on the board kind of um, in anticipation of our kind of final standoff because Valentine's attacked by Butterfield here, um, whose gold trousers are particularly noticeable, I would say, um, <laughs> in this sequence. But also, like a, he's kind of like a sticking with the scalpels. Another good torture sequence here. I like it a lot. He's a fan of the scalpels. That's his weapon of choice. It's such an unsettling sequence because he's right away to set the tone. He immediately cuts... Valentin, but not just anywhere. He cuts along the gum line of his oh, bottom it's teeth. Horrible. Which yeah. is, it's like every time I see it, I just I kind of shiver into myself. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things that you look at. And you're like, oh god! But also, I've never seen that in any other film. 
Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and that's what makes a Clive Barker film a Clive Barker film. I... Because where else are you going to see something like that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I actually think there's a lot from this point on. I would say to the to the end, there's a lot of really unsettling stuff that that uh, that's pretty hard to watch. Like I think the. The, the kind of followers cutting their hair off and they're not paying particular care to that and they're like cutting, slashing their scalps and then there's the stuff with them kneeling on the broken glass is kind of... Yeah. I, I think all that that's all that stuff really makes me wince. And that's me. <laughs> you're uh, you're used to seeing pretty awful things and this one got you, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm used to putting awful things out there for other people to see. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and I would say... Some of this stuff, I was like, oh. I mean, like, I, basically, we're kind of like, you kind of race to that because um, right after this, like, you kind of like, you see the fact that um, uh, Valentin's attacked by Butterfield. He's kind of uh, interrogated into revealing where uh, Nix has been buried. Um, by the time that they, by the time that uh, Harry and uh, Dorothea get back, um, the only other person left in the house, the maid's been killed. They're gone, and um, very quickly after this, kind of, uh, Valentine exhumes the body of uh, Nyx, complete with the kind of Fury Road mask that he had on in the <laughs> beginning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at this point, like you say, the, the stuff with the cultists here, when we revisit them, I find absolutely horrific. Like, so, like, like the thing in particular with the scalps, where they were kind of like, when they're kind of slicing the scalps when they're trying to cut the hair off and things. Um, again, just like absolutely grotesque, and again, not something I remember seeing anywhere else, but just so uncomfortable to look at. Well, I think that's, again, that's Clive Barker creating this amazing world where these people are ready to genuinely do horrific harm to their own bodies because they have such belief in Nyx. I mean, it's been 13 years since uh, they've seen Nyx. They've gone and they've started families. As we saw, as we see in the sequence in the director's cut, they have families, they have homes, they have lives, and it's all over the country. Like these people, they got their letters, one's in Philadelphia, one's in Miami, one's in San Jose. Mm -hmm. And so they moved on. But the reach and the kind of the long lasting impact of Nyx has never left them. They are ready to kill everything that they've built in that time to go back, including themselves. Yeah. yeah. I think the performances, every single one of them, of these cultists is brilliant. They're extremely committed to the roles and obviously as cultists extremely committed to Nyx. Well, when you're, I think it's one of those great times when a director can say, I want you to all just go kind of, I want you to give in to your crazy. Yeah. I want you to live and breathe in that and see what comes out of it. Yeah. Nothing's really too far. Don't be afraid to push it too far. And if you're going too far, I'll pull you back, but get there. Yeah, exactly. Some pretty good practical effects stuff as we kind of get the rising of Nyx, the return of Nyx when he's having the when the mask's being removed from his face by uh, Butterfield. This is really, really gross and really effective. One hundred percent love, especially when we go into his chest. Yeah, the kind of bullet hole cam. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, question: Did you see? Um, so I think we skipped over a scene real quick because uh, I think we failed to mention how Dorothea has been kidnapped. By Butterfield was that in the theatrical cut? Oh, sorry, yeah, that's no. that's worth mentioning. She's not, like it's you don't see a scene where she is kidnapped. It's just that when Valentine is digging up the uh, body, 
she's just kind of like in the background with her hands bound. Yeah, it's extremely disorienting. You're like, oh, right, okay, so Valentine's going to dig up this. Oh, hang on, she's there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not even established that she's in the scene until he's been digging for a while. Just eventually you see her in the background standing by the car. There is an entire sequence. Dorothea <laughs> is at home. She's asleep. The wind is billowing through the trees. And she has a nightmare where she sees a naked man, uh, you know, offering out bloodied hands and cuts all over his body. Um, she's And it's, it's she's back in the compound, uh, but as an adult. And it's just these horrific visions of that weird totem that Nyx was kind of splayed against in the beginning that he flew off of towards <laughs> Philip Swan. And so that's where you get some uh, gratuitous male frontal nudity. Uh, she screams and suddenly jerks awake and she goes to investigate a strange sound in the house. She's calling out for Valentin. She doesn't know what's going on. She turns a corner. There's the dead maid. And as she backs up, Valentin uh, kind of falls into the scene, clearly injured and cut up. Right. And uh, he apologizes profusely to her, and suddenly Butterfield grabs Dorothea, and that is how she is kidnapped. Now, we see we, we, we see the dead maid, but that that's um, heavily sliced up in the theatrical. And now, is, is that uh, when Harry and Swan go to the house? I think so. Yeah, because because the, the first time we see her is actually with Dorothea and then Valentin, and then we have a sequence where Harry and Swan are in a car driving to to the Swan residence, okay. and they're having their own little discussion between the two of them. Yeah. Then they get to the house and see the maid. I, off the top of my head, I'm kind of a little bit sketch on the timeline, but I would say that pretty decent sized chunks of that are missing. Yep. Uh, and that's why the theatrical cut feels like a very incomplete yeah. and jarring, uneven film. I yeah. very much feel like we fucked up much watching the theatrical. No, but in a way, this makes for a really great conversation because now, yeah. you know, if if we'd all seen the, the director's cut, then you know there, we would just be kind of nodding and agreeing. But here we have this, you know, by explaining what is missed suddenly the film takes on a whole new perspective a whole new dimension yeah coming at it from both sides i think does kind of make for make for an interesting kind of conversation so so back to the compound and when they're resurrecting nix and his body is reforming yeah i'm uh, again it's kind of it's a cool sequence effect wise yeah, as, clive, as barker, kind of... clive barker loves a reforming body <laughs> this is true <laughs> yeah i think this is really cool i like how kind of like you kind of see it gradually happening as the pieces of the mask are taken off him and stuff like that and then the moment where he takes off the last piece himself and i think that the it's all really cool and i think that the risen nicks looks awesome yeah that is definitely a demonic creature that is not a human being yeah, uh, I don't yeah. have a problem with the, the look of Nyx at all when he comes back. Also, I really like what happens next with how he kind of uh, how he kind of treats the the followers, the disciples, because the imagery and stuff here is yeah. insane. But what, but the actual kind of uh, the actual kind of sentiment and message behind it is crazy as well. The, um, when he kind of uh, almost kind of drowns them in the quicksand. I love that visual because it's muddy and wet and just awful, and then suddenly the light comes and bakes them alive so in good. this quagmire that they have sunken into it's extremely harrowing yeah i, I think when they're all kind of drowning and they're all kind of smothering I, I find that really really difficult to watch especially when like seconds earlier they've been kind of dancing rapturously because he'd returned and then he kind of scorns them for having kind of sat on their hands the entire time he's been gone and all this kind of thing 
And then, yeah, the way that the kind of the whole tone shifts from this kind of celebratory thing to this absolute horror and then them being kind of, like you say, baked into it is uh, probably, I would say, maybe my favorite individual sequence in here. It's a really, really cool sequence. And it's also that he toys with them. Like, he comes back, and the first thing he does to Butterfield is beat the crap out of him. Like, <laughs> yeah. he kicks him all around. He kicks him in the he, balls, and he flies yeah. across the room. <laughs> exactly. And then he goes out, and he's like, my children, will you suffer for me? And he's the reason that they fall upon their knees against a swath of broken glass. Fuck. And then they kind of follow him, and they're just full of rapture and joy. And he knows this entire time that none of them are worthy. And rather than just killing them right away or setting them off, he instead toys with them. Yeah. He gives us a sermon that inspires them and gives them a little bit of hope and excitement. And then he just lays waste. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a really good way of establishing precisely how evil what we're dealing with is. I think, I think it's, I think it's really, really effective. I love it. Yep. Nick's also at this point attempts to kind of recruit Swan. Seems like he succeeds initially. Then um, he kind of clocks that um, Swan still has these feelings for Dorothea then Swan's kind of apparently killed, and the way that this happens is, again, really, really cool and really horrible to look at. During this exchange, I've got a note written here that says, so, who actually is the Lord of Illusions? Mmm. <laughs> Fair question, yeah. <laughs> it's a very good question, and I, I don't know if there's really an answer to that. God, because it'd be weird if it was Nyx. That would just be off. Yeah, because he's a straight-up, I mean, he's a straight-up sorcerer, as far as I can tell. You know what? I know who it is. It's Billy. Yeah, Billy Who, the unsung hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that like the the actual attack on Swan is really cool. How he's kind of like uh, kind of pinned to the wall, and you kind of hear the bones breaking, and it looks like his brain's ripped apart. You see his bones breaking, and I I, I think it, I, I absolutely love the the visual representation of Nick's pretty much crushing Swan to to death. I hope to God that there's more in the, the director's cut. But there's really just, I think it's some breaking ribs and, yeah, like you say, Mitch, his brain exploding. So I can tell you there isn't really any more no. during that sequence, but there is more in the sequence when Butterfield gets his. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's cool as well when a swan throws what looks like a, a bird made of fire at him and it kind of engulfs his face. And then Butterfield uh, comes back and fights with Damore in the hallway and then he jabs one of his own tools into the wall and it must hit some like some wiring or an electrical box and he is electrocuted but the burn on the side of his face in the director's cut actually expands and then explodes <laughs> and nice. blood jettisons out of his head yeah it's it's much more uh subdued than that uh, i think in the version we watched you get some kind of fluid leakage and then it mm -hmm. kind of just cuts away gotcha yeah no this one they uh they really loved using the the blood pump <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's, uh, again it, like he's been a pretty major character i mean obviously like you say uh, like you said earlier jonathan nix is out of the game for the vast majority of this film and because of that butterfield is kind of your kind of surrogate big bad for a lot of this yes. so like see it's so, so it's a shame that um because i was kind of hoping his death would be afforded a little bit more ceremony so um it's not surprising to me to hear that that's something that was maybe cut out it's a bit more gruesome in the director's cut uh in the most delightful of ways. <laughs> you know, I don't really mind the way Butterfield goes, even in the version we watch, Mitch. He has enough time, and it's it's allowed enough time to breathe before before he actually gets electrocuted. Nah, I want more. All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so 
the eventual way that we kind of uh, the, the the way that Nix is defeated. So Swan, not dead as yet, not yes. just yet, levitates uh, Harry <laughs> above him, and he kind of lands a death blow from above. What do we think of this as um, as a kind of death blow or kind of kill shot? I tell you what, I love I love Nix's transformation just before he gets pushed down that pit. Yeah, that is a uh, it's a very gruesome, very disgusting, very meaty transformation where his face literally rips apart and exposes a skull that for some reason always looked to me like a little bit of a jackal rather than a human. Uh, It was very inhuman, the skull underneath, and Harry shoves his hands into the mud and shit, you know, disgustingness that we've seen uh, when Nyx gets inside of someone's head and forces them to see. Yeah. Like that... That same thing that they've seen is what Nyx turns into and what Harry has to kind of kill. So it's not just that he's killing Nyx, he's killing the horrific vision that Nyx has imprinted upon him. Exactly that, yeah, yeah. And I think that like just around this time you see a lot of the kind of a lot of the tricks from the beginning and things and a lot of callbacks to that. But the tra- yeah, the transformation itself as well is pretty insane. It's amazing. I really love mm-hmm. um Nyx's fingers in the, the head thing that he does. That's yeah. such a strong effect. Uh there's a very similar effect on Hellraiser actually where the um Frank puts his fingers under the guys that Julia brings home skin. Very squirming. Oh yeah. Yeah it's where he puts it uh like around his mouth or something and he's pulling yeah. the skin off the face. Yeah. And a little bit like during the shunting in society. Society. Let's uh it's a good thing I haven't eaten recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's a personal favourite of mine. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, uh, ultimately, Nyx and kind of everything associated is kind of defeated, and Dorothea and Harry escape while um, Swan succumbs to his injuries. And at this point, we're pretty much out. Not unsurprisingly, succumbs to his injuries because it very much looks like his brain explodes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is enough to slow yeah. everyone down. <laughs> and then they appear to walk out into uh, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond. Yeah, it's it definitely has a little bit of that look. Yeah, like kind of with that, we are done, and <laughs> I don't know. I'm well. We're done with the certainly the version we watched. Yeah, I was. Oh, yeah, fair actually. Yeah. So at this point, we're kind of out um, with a repeat in kind of voiceover of the um, flesh is a trap and magic sets us free. Course. Flesh is a trap and magic sets us free. Comes over in voiceover and we're out. Is there anything kind of? Is there anything extra in the director's cut here? No, that's it's the same ending. That's fair. I, Wonderful. I, th- I think it's I think it's a reasonably kind of neat way to tie things up. In a way, it's not a happy ending. Oh, it doesn't no. Oh, no. feel like a victim. They've gone basically into hell. I mean, Nix himself fell down so far into <laughs> the earth that he landed in a pool of lava. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a really far drop. So they literally <laughs> dealt with hell. Um, and they walk out and there's no like, oh my God, we made it. I mean, Dorothea is still heartbroken by the second, her second dealing of Swan's death. Of course. She has to yeah. do deal with it twice. And this time she actually sees it as his brain leaky head rests against her shoulder. Jesus. Uh, and then they, you know, run out and it's, there's this hope that Nyx is dead because every single time they think they've landed a killing blow, something else happens. So we're kind of unsure if he's actually, uh, if he's actually done or not. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with that too, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> um, Andy. Hello. Any uh, concluding thoughts on this? Um, like I say, I've, I've always kind of... I've always had my issues with the Lord of Illusions. 
I'm a big, I'm a massive, massive Hellraiser fan and a huge, huge fan of Nightbreed as well. And for me, um, although we've all seen the various a million different versions of Nightbreed that have come out in the past few years, for better or worse, um, largely for worse, I still really struggle with watching Lord of Illusions. And I feel that, having spoken to Jonathan, a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that I've maybe never seen the director's cut. And that's something I'm really keen to remedy as soon as possible. And I never thought I would say that, where I would so immediately want to rewatch a film that I've been generally ambivalent on. I land very much, uh, very much the same. I came out of this thinking, like I say, at the start of this, I don't think that my opinion on it was fully formed. But as we were addressing things that start that started to feel on reflection, like a little bit rushed, or things that I felt like didn't add up all the way, and the things that I did think kind of alienating as it went on, it was interesting to have those almost exclusively answered in turn <laughs> by the fact that these things were supposed <laughs> to be here. Um, and yeah, the problem is it just that in the cut that we saw they were gone so i'm the same as you i mean i'm i want to watch the director's cut of this pretty much straight away to uh, get a more linear understanding of what this was supposed to be tell you what else i want i would really like uh to bring back old scott bacula now as harry damore and uh do the scarlet gospels film but yes it. yeah i'd be 100 yes. on board for that uh you know re-watching it uh, one of the very, very first shots in the film is, at, you know, as they're setting the mood of the of that Texas Chainsaw Massacre ranch where the compound, the cult compound is. There's a table where someone has just, you know, they were bored and they just screwed in a bunch of uh, wood screws into the table, and it looks very much like uh, Pinhead, like the Ooh. the top of Pinhead's head, and it just. It really makes me want there to be a Harry Demore pinhead show off. I would love to see Scott Bakula return as Harry Demore because I think he, I genuinely love his performance in this film. Oh, I, think I, he, I think he's great. He did a great job with it. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, I think he's great. And now he's older. He's more grizzled, a bit more wise, um, maybe a bit more world weary even than he is in, in Lord of Illusions. Yeah. yeah, I'd be, I'd be on board for checking that out. Definitely. Yeah. Jonathan, before we uh, wrap up, anything you want to talk about you've got going on right now? Not especially. I mean, I mean, I just wanted to thank you guys for having me on this podcast. It's always a wonderful time when I get the opportunity to chat about Lord of Illusions, <laughs> especially, uh, especially when I get to show my love of the film when so many people have seen the theatrical cut that I myself dislike and then i get to turn them on to the director's cut which it's funny i've been referencing this uh a website that highlights the differences between the two versions and someone even said without this stuff it's an entirely different movie and it really does feel like that you have something that feels very incomplete and then once you see the director's cut it feels like what it should have been now admittedly it's a just over two hour movie and when it comes to horror you genuinely want to keep it like 80 to 90 minutes mm -hmm, sure, but here yeah. this movie definitely benefits from having the additional scenes the additional exposition the additional information because then it actually flows in a very musical way mm. i must admit this, yeah. is, this is the possibly one of the first times that i've come away from a film that i didn't think it was particularly hot on and my reaction on the other side of the conversation is you know what uh, this could use uh, 15 minutes more of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean it, it feels like the version we watched feels like you know like when you you 
you go to the toilet watching something with someone and you come back and you say to them, what did I miss? Um, yeah. But then the person's just went, I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> or if you've like, leaned on the chapter selection button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, or it, it, it's like when you go to the movies and you have to take a pee break, but you didn't even get the satisfaction of peeing. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from that, nothing, nothing really to, to announce. I mean, just uh, if you want to see, uh, my writing or my work, then just go to dreadcentral.com. You can follow me on Twitter, just my name at Jonathan Barkan. And yeah, I will hopefully be in your neck of the woods in a few months when I'm attending this year's Fright Fest. And that's kind of about it. If, if you are in attendance, if you see me there, then let's definitely grab a beer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mitch will certainly be there. I'm a little bit more up there because my wife is working on our first baby, which is June all uh, October. So that is a very good reason for you to stay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'll maybe pop. Of the past couple of years, I've not been there as often as I would like. I've kind of popped in for a day, or like I've come down for like two nights or something. So uh, mm-hmm. if I can, if I can swing it, I'll definitely be there, even if it's Fantastic. for one, even if it's for one night. So uh, I've got uh, no such concerns. I'll be making it seven in a row this summer (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan thanks so much for taking the time to do this we really appreciate it thank you Jonathan this has been great thank you thank you to the two of you It's, it's been wonderful and I really enjoyed it and hopefully there'll be a next time hope so yeah that'll be great thank you gentlemen so I've got to say, I really like it when that happens when uh, somebody comes in ready to kind of blindside you with some knowledge and um, Jonathan did that with a vengeance there. Yeah, with a plum. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I really like being schooled on things, as I've said before. Yeah, I mean, um, like I always kind of like, you know, when you ask somebody to pick a film and they do it kind of instantly, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, right. Okay, there's a, very, there's a very clear reason for why you've picked this. Um, do you know what I could have done within the film? Go on. More mandrel. <laughs> Uh, I know there, uh, there was a deleted scene or something that was shot and never used where the mandrel gets killed. Oh, wow. Which I'm glad I didn't see. Mm. But I would have liked to have seen more mandrel because he was the un... Presuming it was he was an unanswered question. What happened to the mandrel? Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. It's true. Just hanging around with the cultists all this time. I mean, it can't be doing that. Well, clearly not. No. And he can't read, so couldn't answer the letters. Also true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. However, <laughs> um, big thank you to Mr. Jonathan Barkan, Editor-in-Chief of Dread Central, joining us tonight to talk Lord of Illusions. Yeah, and if you're not checking out Dread Central for your horror news, you probably should. Yeah. 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 Well, it's we, pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you're not getting it there, where are you getting it? <laughs> uh, but that brings us just about to the end of another one, episode 51 in the bag. Christ, yeah, we're over that hill now, man. Yeah, yeah, battling on in to year two. Yeah, the terrible twos. Yeah, let's see where this takes us. <laughs> uh, tell you the next place it'll take us. Minisode yeah. 51, yeah, coming uh, your way this Monday. We will be doing all the usual stuff. We'll be taking a look at your feedback, talking about what we've been watching, uh, tracking my progress through the Shockwaves 100, and of course, another round of Mitch's pitches. Yep, and I'll tell you what, I cannot wait for next week's film already. Oh, yeah. that's. I'm not saying any more than that. If that's teaser enough, then that's fine, but I cannot wait for next week's film. Yeah, we're going to have some fun, and hopefully you guys are too. <laughs> yes. 
So that announcement will be coming Monday as well, of course. In the meantime, go on and get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. Facebook and Instagram, Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can also always email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. Yep, and I'm pulling back slightly on the vitriol that I directed towards Spotify on Monday's mini-sode because they have now posted the last episode. Yep, yep, that they did eventually <laughs> surface. Yep, uh, so there are tons of places you can listen to us, uh, not least of all. Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Acast, TuneIn, Stitcher, and our home, the heroes that are Podbean. Podbean, never let us down. Yeah. So we're back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, flesh is a trap and magic sets us free. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.